Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. All right. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining us today is Martin Luther King III, chairperson of the Drum Major Institute and the co-founder of Give Us the Ballot. Martin, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. My pleasure. So Give Us the Ballot, one of my favorite speeches, just rewatched it. And if you read that transcript, I just think nowadays, like, you know, there, there are people that can't do what he did back in the day. People just don't give the same speeches. Now, this speech came in 1957, just before you were born. What right. were some of your earliest memories with your father? So when I think about my earliest memories, probably one of them was when we moved to Atlanta. I was in 57. I was very young when we were in Montgomery, where I was born. But moving to Atlanta and living on Johnson Avenue in Atlanta, which is near the spot where, very close to where the Carter Center, President Carter's Presidential Library is here in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, but as a child, the first five years uh, in Atlanta from 60 to 65, we lived over there. And I remember um, going in our home, I remember a couple of incidents, someone had burned a cross on our lawn and I remember examining that with my father. But I remember fun times also, riding our bicycles on I-7585, which today is uh, obviously a major thoroughfare that runs through Atlanta and through one of the major uh, institutions, Grady Hospital. Uh, that highway was not open, so I remember riding distinctly from our home to that highway. Uh, just just so many precious memories as a little kid, traveling with my father, going to the YMCA with my father and my brother and I, where we learned how to swim. Did you ever get to see like how he would prepare for those speeches? I mean, when you listen to those things, they're so simple. The message is clear. It's motivating. How did he prepare for those things? Well, I'm sure. And I honestly, I can't say that I, uh, the, the few times that I remember him going in our study in our home, uh, where he had a number of books, his, the library is what it was, but really it was his study. It was the study in, in our home. Uh, and he would close the door, and of course, he had a uh, photographic memory in a real sense, my mom used to tell us. So uh, I'm sure he would do some meditation, some prayer, and then he would write his thoughts out. Um, and then maybe at some point he even practiced them. I don't remember seeing that. I do remember him being in the study many times, reading books, uh, looking through resource materials to prepare. Uh, but he had a very special gift as well. All of us, as you say, do not, most of us do not have that. <laughs> yeah, his, his delivery is, you know, second to none. 
and you listen to those speeches and, and you think about how similar, you know, of a time we're living in today, what was the context of that give us the ballot speech? So obviously in 57, black people did not legally, uh, while there had been some who had voted, there really was not a legal right to vote. In fact, all over this country, uh, it there were literacy tests, um, which no one could pass, even most recently. One of the literacy tests that was used was given to students at Harvard, and they were not able to pass it. Um, some of the questions, of course, were just insane, like how high is up? Uh, how many bubbles in a bar of soap? I mean, no one knows these things. Uh, so the context of 57 was, look, we don't even have anti-lynching uh, an anti legislation that we can get. Uh, but if we are allowed to vote, we will elect people who will enact legislation that moves our nation forward and addresses the issue of racism, addresses uh, the issue of poverty, uh, addresses all of the social issues that make our society a better society. That's really what the context was about. And it was at the Lincoln Memorial in, in, in 57. In fact, um, when I first remember seeing it many, many years ago, but it was after the you know 1963 March on Washington, I was like, well, this is, it's very similar, except for I think dad had on a robe mm. when he delivered, and it was a prayer visual. And how many times have you spoken at the Lincoln Memorial? I would say about, six or seven now six or seven so mm -hmm. that first time you were speaking at that memorial did, did it give you any chills what was that experience like i was petrified first of all yeah <laughs> the very first time i was petrified and and even the second time and even every time i'm there it is almost it really is an honor to be in that spot where where dad and, and so many others stood to advance freedom and justice uh for all humankind and so uh, it's inspiring, it's motivating, uh, and it's sort of frightening in, in, in one sense. I, I think because whether you acknowledge or like it or not, when I am there, um, you know, it, it, there are comparisons that are going to be made, you know, uh, and you, you know this in your mind. I don't fo focus on that, but again, I'm also thankful we have a tradition that is continuing because... My wife and I have a 13-year-old daughter, and she now has spoken at the Lincoln Memorial twice. And she definitely embodies the spirit of her grandparents, her grandmother and grandfather. Well, I think your daughter, your, your wife, and, and really anyone in this movement has shown a lot of courage. And you know, whether you're giving a speech or you know, uh, whether you're trying to just make a living, you know, there's a lot of fear involved in that. I think that was whether it was your father or the many other people, you know, uh, were symbols of courage. Um, do you think people right now are fearful of their voting eligibility? Walk us behind and take us through what your campaign is currently trying to fight. So we'll all remember that last year, the nation came together and more people in November of last year voted than ever before in the history of this country. Mm -hmm. And we chose different leadership than the former leadership that was in. Mm -hmm. um, when we talked in, in Georgia, of course, we had a runoff. And for the first time in the history of our state, uh, we elected our first black United States Senator Raphael Warnock, and we elected our first Jewish Senator John Ossoff, but it was because people had come together uh, and actually came out in numbers unheard of. So in a real sense, people did their civic duty, which was to come out to vote. But across America, there have been a number of states and a numbers, numbers of led, pieces of legislation, over 400 have been proposed. I think 18 now states have passed legislation that make it harder to vote, um, which is very sad because we live in a democracy. And democracy is about freedom, as we know. Uh, we go all over the world talking about advancing democracy. 
uh, trying to teach others how to embrace democracy. But right here at home, right now, we are suppressing democracy uh, in those 18 states and others that are going to come online for legislation. And it's all for the purpose, some political purpose, meaning that there are some elected officials who believe if too many people vote, they will not retain their seats. And so they have created these laws, this legislation, to basically make it very difficult uh, for someone else to assume power. That's my first uh, scenario that I want to share. Secondly, I think that because we knew this, uh, on August 28th, this year, we had another march on Washington, but it was March specifically, March for voting rights. And we had over 100 demonstrations in 41 states talking about protecting, preserving, and expanding the right to vote. So that was a large portion of our nation. We were engaged online with over 100 million people. Uh, over 63% of the population says we need to expand voting rights. But obviously, there are some elected officials who have not heard what the population wants. And therefore, they have put these laws in place, including in my own state. And I'll say that one of the most egregious things that has been done in Georgia is that the nonpartisan voting commissions, there are 159 counties in Georgia. Every county has a commission of maybe three persons. And if the Republican legislature does not like the results of the election, they can actually remove those individuals and put individuals in that will change the outcome of the election. That has got to be illegal, but thus far, I'm not sure how far it's made it in terms of the courts. So all of this is important because the way you address this is at the federal le the level, and you have legislation from the House and the Senate. The House has passed a couple of bills already. One is the John Lewis voting rights bill. Um, one is a, a, portion of, a, a variation of For the People Act. We believe that the Senate now needs to do its job and pass this legislation. And one of the ways we are doing this is we're helping to fund grassroots organizations, those who are on the ground who reach people every day, like Equality Arizona, like the New Georgia Project, like Alabama Forward, like Move Texas, like Black Voters Matter. But we raise dollars in small numbers, and in large numbers, but wholly, we're asking people to give 50 cents to $2 every day. And at the end of the month, we send all of these many organizations funds so that they can continue to do this work hmm. to get the word out about the importance of voting, get the word out about how we're going to expand the right to vote, get the word out about how we need to be calling our senators, encouraging them to vote for this new legislation, um, which in theory is directly talking about giving us the ballot. So explain that to us a little bit more. You just said that there are Republican legislators that are going to, to get in the way of, excuse me, was that uh, Republican legis legislators that have the power to remove people if they don't get the job done, which in, in turn, you know, cripples our democracy, right? That's not, you know, your father's message was very simple. If we can vote, we can change the laws. The anti, you know, the anti-lynching bill was one of those messages. Um, explain that a little bit more for people who are uh, not quite in on what's going on in the world. You know, I, and I will, I don't like to be partisan, but I'm going to be partisan because that gives the best analogy. Please. I think that there are, there are the, the, these laws that are being passed are laws that are making it very difficult for communities of color and others, for students, for, um, you know, seniors to vote as people have always voted. And we as a nation really should be expanding, not reducing the right to vote. And so what has happened is 18 states now have passed legislation 
The specific piece I was talking about just applies to Georgia. Not all of the states have done that. But they, for, for example, I'll give an example. If you add a, a county, Harris County in Houston, largest county in the state, um, leans largely Democratic. And if you had 100 drop boxes in Harris County, now you may only have 25. So you reduce, you don't, you're not saying people cannot vote. It just makes it very difficult. For example, um, we also, they had voting because of the pandemic 24 hours a day. They had all kinds of things that made it easier for people to vote. Why would that not be maintained? Why would you think, okay, the only way we're going to win is we're going to have to make it where these individuals who voted will probably not vote because we're making it harder to vote. Hmm. We should be making it easier. You should, the theoretically, you should be able to just, as you sit and pay bills on your computer at home, you should be able to vote in the same way. We have the technology to do that, but yet we've not decided for some reason to do that. And so, again, our campaign, Give Us the Ballot campaign, raises dollars because they are grassroots organizations all over this country who are helping to educate, who are helping um, to not just inform, but to encourage people to stay engaged in the process. Uh, not telling them how to vote, because, you know, I don't think you need to tell people how to vote. I think we just need to make the process easy so that people can vote. Easy and simple. Are there any people that you believe shouldn't have the right to vote that are American citizens? Well, of course, uh, we do have a provision that says that if you have a felony uh, in some states, not all, that you cannot vote. Um, my only issue with that is if you've paid your debt to society, your your right to vote should be reinstated. Mm. And um, that is being done in some states, uh, but there are still some states where if you have a felony, you, you can never vote again. Um, I don't think, obviously, immigrants who are not citizens should not be allowed to vote, mm. uh, only American citizens. And I think that what some are using to to provide a, a, a perspective is to say, okay, we need to have all these uh, forms of identification to make sure that someone who's not a citizen can not, uh, can, will not vote. And also, you know, what, what we're doing is it really is, is uh, we, we're creating voter suppression uh, and we're acting like voter fraud exists. I mean, it might in a very minimum way, less than way less than 1%. There may be sometimes some fraud, but it's such a insignificant amount that why would we put so many draconian laws in place uh, to protect and preserve other than to keep people from voting that you don't want to vote because you want to retain your power? And I think, you know, Americans need to understand that. And I think Americans do and will. Um, so that is what is happening today. That's what's happening across the country. Um, and unfortunately, we are far more divided than we should ever be. It's all right to disagree. My father taught us how to disagree without being disagreeable. But yet we've taken it to a new level so that not only do we disagree, but we embrace the hostility and hatred. Uh, the worst of what we saw in this country happened on January 6th, where insurrectionists came to Washington, and they basically tried to break in the Capitol and disrupt and change the election outcome. The best of what we saw was in November of last year, and in our state in January, on January 5th, we saw people coming out uh, doing their civic duty, casting their rights to vote. Uh, and, and somehow we've got to find a way to bring America together, by the way. Um, and and it, it is not happening, you know, fast enough. We're getting more divided as opposed to becoming more, in a sense, wanting to work together. Martin, let's talk about that a little bit, bringing people together. That's what a good leader does. I think one of the the strongest mindset switches that your father was able to do is kind of change the thinking of nonviolence to peaceful resistance. And that was a strong message that people really seemed to grab onto. What would he do in a time like this when polarization is at its all-time high? 
Uh, you've got social media nowadays changing the narrative. I mean, the list goes on and on. What do you think he would do? And, and how would you uh, also approach a, a sensitive topic like this? Well, I think we have to use every modality that exists from a technology standpoint to reach people. Um, there's an old saying, cooler heads prevail. And if I'm hollering at you or you're hollering at me, I, we're not going to hear each other. We're not, we're not going to ever be able to move. The problem is we automatically jump to conclusions and probably the areas where that has greatly occurred um, is through, you know, mainstream media for a number of years um, has promoted these divisions. And I think, uh, you know, talk radio also promotes divisions. Uh, it is ca cast in a way that it's talking about make America this significant nation but it really is divisive. Uh, it is not constructive. It is more, in my judgment, this is obviously my only personal opinion, it is more destructive than constructive. And we, we've got to figure out how do we get to a constructive dialogue? So, you know, Dad used the technique of nonviolence, uh, believed that we could live together without destroying person or property. And every demonstration that he was involved in. He always advocated nonviolent conflict resistance. And I'm not criticizing anyone else who chooses uh, another method. I'm just saying that I believe this is a method that is sustainable. Uh, you know, if we all, for example, believed in the old biblical adage of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, most of us wouldn't have eyes and teeth. <laughs> So obviously, Seriously. humankind has to move to a much higher level. And that's what nonviolence teaches us. That's what nonviolence utilizes. There are six steps in the nonviolent tradition that my dad and his team and my mom and her team during her life used. And I, I'll quickly, there are also six steps, but I'm only going to use, uh, I mean, there are six principles. Okay. I'm only going to talk about the steps very quickly. This is to resolve conflict. The first step is information gathering. So you, you must acquire all the information about the issue before you can talk about resolving it. Then you have to educate the public on all sides of the issue. Information gathering and education are two different things. The third thing is people have to have a personal commitment to resolve an issue. If you don't have a personal commitment, uh, you just, you're just not going to get anywhere. You have to almost have the mindset of a win-win. I want to create a win-win option. I'm not going to get everything, nor are you going to get everything, but we both can get something. That's a win-win uh, scenario. The fourth step is negotiations. You sit down and, and talk and, and come up with all of the possible outcomes. The fifth step, if negotiations falls apart, and I, by the way, in the first four steps, most conflicts can be resolved, in my judgment. Uh, but the fifth step is direct action, where we are marching in the streets or we are, you know, tweeting. We are um, inundating our Congress and Senate personnel with, um, you know, with um, uh, emails. Um, and then the final step is bringing the community back together, reconciliation. Now, often in our society, we get a tiny bit of information and we go right to direct action. Mm. Uh, we don't do the other steps. Mm. We, we, we've we heard these these kind of things so long, so we want immediate action. So it makes sense to engage in direct action. But I think that if we were sometimes a tiny bit more patient and went through all steps, we would probably get a better conclusion at the end of the day. Uh, I know that's what my dad and his team did. And it did it, it, the process moved. Uh, and progress was made. A 1964 Civil Rights Act, a 65 Voting Rights Act, a 68 Fair Housing piece of legislation. All of these things happened during the modern civil rights movement, and Dad was a part of most of that leadership. Martin, I heard an interesting quote one time that says, the rate of adoption, whether you're adopting an idea or it's technology, moves at the rate of trust. How do you build trust? as a leader, as an informed leader, 
who's on a public platform? Well, I think um, my personal view is that, you know, number one, you have to operate in integrity. And unfortunately, there are some in our society who do not operate in integrity. Um, in fact, there are more people who don't operate in integrity, I think, who are in leadership, I should say, than people that do operate in integrity. Um, integrity is what builds trust because people look at and see what you do. You know, if, if I was, for example, uh, advocating not drinking and, you know, I'm not suggesting one should or shouldn't, but if I was an advocate of not drinking and every week you see me at a bar, right. you know, I, you know, I, how do you build trust when you're, it's inconsistent? I think people need or like or want to see leaders that are consistent uh, on whatever points they may make, even if they are points that I disagree with or disagree with the philosophy. That's what builds trust. It's, it's, it's consistency. It's, and, 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 you know, character is a part of it. I, I have to believe that, you know, character is so, so important. Um, the other thing is people have been, uh, have been allowing, and I say allowing for so long, leaders to say things and don't hold them accountable for what they said. And so the people lose hope when that happens. And so we have to always be cognizant uh, of making sure that we deliver what we say we can. And if we can't, then we must come back to the table and say, look, I thought I was going to be able to do this. I was not successful. We need to go at it again or a different way. And not very often that does not happen. Uh, so people just lose faith in the system. I mean, when you think about how come people have not come out for elective races, because people don't have faith that anything is going to change in their lives. So we have to make sure that we maintain integrity. We maintain doing what we say uh, that we're going to do. I think that's an interesting point. You know, like how do you take someone seriously if they're doing the opposite? Um, but another thing I've learned too is that you know people aren't perfect, and so when when you see a, a major leader that makes a mistake or does something that uh, is is a little arbitrary, let's say. Um, you know, the first instinct and the gut instinct is to react and say, hey, we got to throw him underneath the bus, you know, kick him out of office. He's not this, this and that. But is there anything to say about looking at yourself first and, and also just understanding, like, how difficult it is to be in the public eye, to make the right decisions, to not be you know, seen doing anything else? I mean, no one's a perfect individual. We're all yeah. flawed as human beings. What are your thoughts on that from a public perception? Well, I, I certainly concur that none of us are perfect and none of us ever will be. But the goal is to minimize those kind of mistakes um, in, in my judgment. And I, I don't think we, you know, if someone, for example, makes the same mistake over and over again, then you do have to say, OK, well, obviously this person is not maybe the right person for leadership. Uh, but elected officials or non-elected or community leaders or religious leaders all of us are going to make mistakes um and when we make those mistakes as i said if you continue to make those same mistakes you obviously are not learning and therefore maybe should remove yourself from leadership very few people will do that mm. uh the public has to demand it and sometimes even then it does not happen I mean, you know, the standard order has changed since President Trump. And what I mean by that is um, nine out of 10 persons who attempted to do the things that he did, I don't mean the policy things, prior to getting to office, you know, right. when you talk about um, his treatment of people who did work for him. And the allegations that he didn't pay people, um, you know, he just mistreated a lot of people. And yet he was able to get away with that. And ultimately, every day it was it was certainly confirmed that he was lying to the American public. And yet you still had, you know, 70 plus million people who voted for him and it just didn't care that he was lying. I mean, that that to me. 
is, is very sad that we're at that point. I understand from a policy standpoint, if you want to support someone, but I think that when a person has the kind of uh, issues that he personified, which again, I, I mean, you know, I'm raising a 13 year old daughter, my wife and I, and many others are raising children and we're telling our children, you know, that you should not do, do not lie. You, you must tell us the truth. And yet you allow a president to lie to you every day and you think that's all right. Hmm. You know, there's something wrong with that. And there's something wrong with our our minds. Even today, he is still going around saying that he won the election just in Iowa the other day. And every time he has a rally, he's saying he's, he's saying things. And unfortunately, the people in his party believe him. I would have more respect for you if you said, you know, I. I I believe in some of the policy, but no, he did not win the election. I mean, you've got, you know, I don't know, I forget the numbers now. It's a significant number of Republicans who believe that he he won. Hmm. And so either we are in denial as a society or we are, I, I, don't, I don't even know. We, we're at a point that we've never been. Now, here's what I think. I think that when we're going through a cleansing, or metamorphosis, things do change. You know, there are several kinds of metamorphoses in an example. You can be a tadpole and go to a frog, or you can be a caterpillar and become a butterfly. You know, I hope that at the end of the day, the analogy of a caterpillar to a butterfly, but it's, it's, it's regardless of whatever the metamorphosis is, it's painful. It's not something that is just easy and just easily happens. It's a painful process. And so I think our nation is going through a cleansing. We saw a significant number of young people engaged in social change last year after the tragic death of George Floyd, all over, not just the United States, but in every state in our nation, there were demonstrations, but also there were demonstrations on, in, the Europe, on Europe, in the European continent, demonstrations in the Middle East, demonstrations, um, in on the African continent, in Australia and New Zealand, and demonstrations in South America and Canada, just about the entire world was engaged in demonstrating because we all saw a policeman operate as judge, jury, and executioner. And it was seen all over the world, which galvanized. And all of a sudden, the eyes of people were open. And so now people could say Black Lives Matter. And it didn't mean that other lives don't matter. It was that saying Black Lives Matter also because it felt to Black people or many Black people that Black lives don't matter. And when we see constant police engagement, uh, and also right now, we're going through a, a strange time because we're seeing so much crime all over America and all over the world. And so on the one hand, we want policemen police personnel to do their jobs, to protect and serve, and we want them to do it in a dignified way. But when crime gets out of hand, people's attention span changes because we all want to be protected, and we want those policemen to come now. So it, there's a lot going on right now. But my higher point was those eyes of the young people that have been open, which many of them are white young people, many of them are certainly African-American, many of them are Latino and Hispanic, and many are Asian. Though Their eyes, and everyone who saw, those eyes are not going to close. Hmm. These issues are not going away. We have got to find a way to move our nation forward in a positive way and not a negative way. And that's an interesting point you brought up. First, you talk about the interregnum, you know, the, the period between reigns right now, kind of what we're going through, this kind of messy middle in between. And then you refer to your daughter and you know, I just one of the first questions that kind of pops in my head is like, you know, what do you see in the next generation that you think uh, can make a difference in generations to come? So what I see is a different kind of young person who is more concerned about their fellow human being. That's the difference. You know, often we went through a period where, you know, we were focused on ourselves. And it's nothing wrong with focus on yourself to be successful. In fact, some would say the first part of your life is dedicated towards success. 
and the second part of your life is dedicated towards significance. Um, so there's nothing wrong with focusing on self, but unfortunately, we didn't really think about how this impacts others. How do we as a society, you know, uh, address these significant issues, whether it's drug use, whether it's, you know, teenage pregnancy, whether it's bullying. I mean, they're all kind of issues. Young people are concerned about bullying because they're bullied today. Mm. And I think they are more conscious of things than we, you know, than, than, than some of us were. I mean, I, I've been oh, for 30 years more or more, I've been traveling around the country encouraging people to vote. And now you've got a consciousness of young people who are engaged, whether it's little Miss Flint, who's talking about water in Flint, Michigan, whether it is the Parkland students who are talking about responsible gun legislation, whether it is the Me Too movement, young women again. Uh, so there's a consciousness today that didn't exist. And it's the it's younger people who, I mean, even today, you know, we've got to expand our definitions because now we're looking at what we are. We, you know, how do you define yourself? What are your pronouns? All of that did not exist, you know, just a few years ago. So there's an expansiveness, an expansion that is, and a consciousness that is growing. And young people do not want to see other young people or anyone mistreated, I think. And I think there are leaders who are emerging who are fostering that kind of mentality. Uh, and it's going to make our nation and our world a better place for all of God's children, I think. I think it was 74 years ago your father gave that speech to give us the ballot. And I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Are, are we going to have the same problems when your daughter is your age than we do right now? And do you <laughs> think they'll be the same? What are the challenges, you know, that you see in the future? I would have to say uh, the absolutely not. I mean, what I think is tragic is that we are still fighting issues that my father and mother fought. We should be far beyond the, the, this as a nation. Um, and, and because, as I said, there's a cleansing going on in my judgment that's taking place. Hmm. And that cleansing may be painful for some, but at the end of the day, I think we're going to be uh, better. We're going to be a better nation. Uh, I certainly do not want, I wish my daughter, my, when, in fact, she, uh, she spoke at the march. Uh, last year, we had a march on hmm. August 28th. And hmm. this year, we had one on August 28th. And she basically said, you know, my generation is the generation that is going to make sure that these issues are put to bed for once and for all. She didn't say that specifically, but that's the essence of what she said. Now, she referenced my mother, who used to say that freedom is never permanently given, but it must be regained by every generation. So in a sense, every generation has its calling. But God knows by the time Yolanda gets to be anywhere in the vicinity, of my age, um, I, I these issues should be far behind us. My father characterized them as the triple evils of poverty, racism, and he said militarism. I've sort of changed militarism right. to violence. Mm -hmm. And we need to find ways to eradicate these triple evils because it will make our society a better place uh, for, for all of us. And I think Yolanda has already demonstrated that at 13 years old, she is dedicated uh, to working to fulfill that mission. I mean, we we look at climate control that some people say don't exist, does not exist, and yet we're seeing things happen in our midst all the time that are, are are very damaging. And humankind has got to get a hold of these issues and address them. Uh, and there there's so many. I mean, there's there's not just one. But the fact of the matter is, I think the young people are prepared. They're ready. They're willing. They're able and they're they're determined. There's a, a term I, I heard the other day that's called like reverse mentoring. It's learning from people from an, uh, a younger generation. I want to go back to the, the voting laws that we were talking about beforehand. Uh, do you think that the younger generation, people that are your daughter's age or let's say 17, 16 years old, 15 years old, do you think they have the right to vote? You know, um, that's an interesting question because my my daughter said to us um, 
that had young people voted, been allowed to vote in the election last time, that we might have been on a different trajectory. Because I, th I think, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, President Trump brought out something in, in, in America. He, he emboldened those who are race, racist by the way he chose to communicate. Um, he brought out the very worst of America. Now, some would say you have to bring out the worst before you can address it. And that's one school of thought that, you know, now that we know these problems exist, uh, we, we can deal with them. I mean, that was racism during President Obama, but he never focused on it. And so it was almost as if we were, we were misled. Some were misled, not, you know, not certainly I was not, but some were misled to think we're in a post-racial period and, and it's, it's wonderful. It was certainly amazing and great and significant that Americans came together and elected the first black president. But that didn't mean that all of a sudden racism was dead in America. Racism was still very much alive. So my, my point is, I think that where we are today is, again, we're going through this cleansing. And the cleansing, at the end of the day, is going to make us a better, a better nation. And I, I do think that we all can learn from some of the things we see young people doing because they have courage, they have commitment, they have creativity. They have new ways of doing things. And I don't agree with a lot of the things. I mean, unfortunately, I think we spend too much time focused on the game, the whole gaming industry. And many of the games that are played are violent games. And I would like to see us create a culture of nonviolence because we've embraced a culture of violence. And that culture is, I don't want to say wiping us out, but it certainly has taken us in a direction that I wish we did not have to go into. And we don't even we don't even realize it. I mean, people are shooting people every day at the drop of a hat over nothing. And right. that should not be the case. That is not normal behavior. But if you've been playing a game where you go into an alternative reality state and you're shooting and doing all kinds of things, then it makes it even easier to pick up a gun, a real gun, and do harm to someone. And we need to at least have this dialogue uh, at a minimum. We need to be talking about it so that we can change it and address it. If your father had a Twitter account, do you think he'd be using it? I, I think, yes, I, I think so. What, I think that, again, that's one of the modalities that helps to get a, a message out. And because he always operated from a positive perspective, I think dad would look at a person or people and not focus on the negative aspect, but he would try to pinpoint where the positive was. And that's where he worked on the heart. He worked on extracting from a person. Someone said to me the other day, you know, we listen with our ears, but we hear with our heart. Mm. And I took that because I, I, I listen, I've listened to I Have a Dream 10,000 times as a speech. But whenever I, hear it, I moved to tears. Doesn't matter how many times I've heard it. You know, as I said, I listen to it all the time. I can listen, I can quote it. But yet, it's not until I'm hearing it that I move to action to want to do something. And so in, in our nation, as I said, we're not all, we, we listen, we're hearing stuff all the time. I mean, we're, we're listening all the time, but we're not always hearing. Mm. I think if people would be willing to pause and hear, then maybe we can hear the best of what, you know, is to come, of the best of what our society can become. Because we can become that nation uh, that my father envisioned where freedom and justice and equality is real for all humankind. We're nowhere near there yet, but we certainly can become that. But we have to listen and hear, in my judgment, for that to happen. Is that what you're referring to then when you're, when you're talking about a cleansing? Is it a cleansing of the heart? Is it, is it that connection of being more open-minded, of understanding the human being? What is it specifically about that well, connection? Well, it, it, it is a cleansing of, of the heart, but it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's knowing that which is right. I, you know, I want to share an example. You know, when people, when people, people, no matter who they are, have the, 
the ability to hear that which is authentic and to recognize it and em embrace it. Um, you know, I, I speak at progressive events and I speak in conservative circles. I was in Utah a few days ago at Brigham Young University and spoke to about 8,500 students. And the students gave me a standing ovation. And it wasn't me, it was what I was saying. Um, my point is, I initially may have thought, okay, I know they're gonna listen because they are taught to be cordial. But for them to feel like what you're saying applies to something we need to put into our lives, to integrate into our lives, is, is very significant. And that's why I say, you know, you listen with ears, but you hear with the heart. And I think what I was saying, they actually heard mm. and were moved to say, okay, at that particular moment, you know, I, I would, I'm not saying that anything I said would have been embraced, but that message, which is very much rooted in, you know, in, in, in the Church of, of Latter-day, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, but very, very conservative. Uh, in fact, I think the students are ahead of the church and the school. So the school is going to have to catch up with the students because the students want to see a different kind of thing um, where no one is mistreated uh, because of sexual orientation, because of ethnicity, uh, because of gender that people are treated with dignity and respect. Now, that's where dad's message actually begins. We mm. treat people like we want to be treated, with dignity and respect. If we mastered that, our society would be so much better. Mm. I certainly agree. Martin, you spoke about authenticity, integrity, compassion, and hearing with your heart. Martin, let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? So I think... There are attributes that real leaders have. Um, uh, you know, a real leader has to love what they do. They have to love their community. They have to have a love of, of what is going on. And, and let me put it in this way. Here's what my father said. And I think this is, represents leadership too. The ultimate measure of a human being is not where you stand in times of challenge, uh, excuse me, in times of, of, of challenge and controversy, but where you stand, excuse me, I said that wrong. The ultimate measure of a human being is not where one stands in times of comfort and convenience, mm. but it's where you stand in times of challenge and controversy. Mm. He went on to say that on some questions, cowardice asked, is the position safe? Expediency asks is a position politic. Vanity asks is a position popular. But that's something that's deep inside that's called conscience. Ask is a position right. He went on to say sometimes we must take positions that are neither safe nor popular nor politic, but we must take those positions because our consciences tell us they are right. So the ultimate measure of a person is where they stand in times not in times of comfort and convenience, but challenge and controversy. Leaders have to address issues of challenge and controversy. Also, in life, you know, you can be like a thermometer or a thermostat. And again, this is what leadership is. You know, a thermometer is, is a good device, but all it does is records the temperature. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's 70, it'll say 70. If it's very cold and it's 30, it'll say 30. But that's all it does all day long. But another device on that mechanism called a thermostat. A thermostat, if it's too cold, you turn it up to warm it up. If it's too hot, you turn it down. It regulates the temperature. Leaders help to regulate uh, our thought process so that that's the position. Again, it may not be safe. It may not be popular. It may not be politic. But you take a position because you know that it's right. That's what I believe real leadership is about. For Martin Luther King III, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, regulate the temperature, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Martin. 
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Martin Luther King III. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And Martin, we had a few questions fly in to the show today. And also, folks, if you're watching this on Crowdcast, punch in your questions in the chat box on the right. Or if you're watching this on mobile down below, if you're on LinkedIn, come on over and ask Martin your questions. We got a few minutes left for him. And Martin, the first one comes in from Mark. And Mark asks, what countries have the highest voter turnout and what can we learn from them? So I think there are some of the European countries have them and obviously countries where there are people who are different leaders than we do would have because they, they're forced uh, to, to come out. Uh, but I think, you know, he, we as the United States, they're about 170 democracies or so. And we are like 100 and I believe like 38, 39, so 100 and, uh, 137 or six countries voted higher levels than we do. And I think what we learned from those who, you know, those countries that voted higher levels is the thing I hope we learn is when we make the access very simple, where you can vote online, uh, where you can vote, and, and maybe we ought to even make it a national holiday. That's part of one of the pieces of legislation. When I was in South Africa back in the mid-90s, uh, the election day was a holiday. That was the first time that Black South Africans were able to vote. That was about 93, mm -hmm. I believe, when Mr. Mandela was first elected as the first Black uh, African uh, to lead that country. But it was a holiday. I saw droves and droves of people standing in line waiting to vote, having that opportunity. In fact, I remember one man said, I would, he was like 78 years old. I stayed up all night because I was afraid that if I went to sleep, I might miss my opportunity to vote and change my country. And he went on to say, now that I voted, I can go on the glory. That's the essence of what he said. But my higher point is today, what we need to do is to make it so easy to vote that no one has an excuse. That's what we should learn from, from, from these countries, that they've made it easy for people to vote. They've made it also made people want to vote. And I think that I think we I think we're going to get there. I, I, I'm very convinced that we will. Another question flies in today, Martin. This one's from Julie. And she asks, thank you for your ongoing leadership and wisdom. And I respect that you're encouraging your daughter to speak out. What a legacy you're sustaining question. What do you think the next generation can do to create change? And how do you think your daughter will play a role in the movement? Well, I'll start with, with, with my daughter because I, I hope that whatever she does, we, my wife and I, encourage uh, her. We don't, um, we have not forced her into leadership. When she was a kid, she had an interest at two years old in homelessness and figuring out what do we do, you know, in fact, she said, I want to buy a big, big house so I can house all of these individuals who are mm -hmm. uh, relegated to, to the streets. Um, and I, that made us so proud because we didn't say anything to her other than explaining why there was a, pro a, a position, why there were homeless persons and how our society needed to do a better job to address it. Um, she's had a social justice commitment since she was knee-high to a grasshopper, and it continues to grow. Um, so she's interested in, in climate. She's interested in, in young people being engaged to change our country. What, but what I would say is, I don't think we have to, all we have to do is continue to till the soil. It's almost like fertilizing soil, because the, the young people are gonna do their parts. It's sad, in my judgment, that we have not done more and we are not further along. But I am convinced that these young people are gonna change our nation and our world for the better. Uh, I was on a call just the other day with young people in Europe and young people from the African continent and young people from Australia and all these amazing things in South America that they're talking about that they're doing. And they're young people that are you know, 17, these actually were young girls, uh, young ladies, I should say. Uh, between the ages of like 15 to 18. And they're, they're going to make monumental change. So I'm, I feel we're in good ha better hands than 
then maybe not. And that's that's a good thing. I just wish we were further along so they could look at new challenges and not have to deal with some of the old challenges that exist. Seems like your daughter embodies a lot of the qualities of you, your wife, uh, and your father. Have you asked her what her dream is? Um, she has not yet told us that. What she has said is, sure, she wants to walk uh, and continue in the footsteps of her grandfather, but she also says she has her own her own dreams. I mean, if, if she could tell you today um, exactly what it is that she want, what kind of society she wants to see and how she would go about creating it. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really reverts to, my father, by the way, had a book. His last book was called, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. I say that because I would hope that people would get that book and read it. There's a chapter in there called The World House that talks about how we should interact. While this was done in 1967, written, it's applicable to 2021 and beyond. And he talks about also the beloved community. Um, That's what Yolanda truly wants to create, the beloved community, so that Mm. every child has an opportunity to achieve his or her dream, so that every person can have a decent job with decent pay. Every person can have health care. Every person can have the best education. And everyone, every person can have justice. Um, she would say that in a different way, but that's the essence of what you know her vision is uh, for for our nation. It's a compassionate community, and it sounds like a great vision and, and something that would make the world a better place. Folks, if you want to go help out, go online to giveustheballot.org. Martin, we talked about democracy today, and, and that's really the first path to get there. Uh, letting people who who uh, are eligible to vote can vote, and we got to continue to support democracy, uh, and never infringe upon people's uh, God-given rights. So, Martin, appreciate you coming on this podcast today, my friend. Any last words for people listening to this show? I think if I had one thing to say, and, you know, I, I believe in promoting love, forgiveness, you know, justice, uh, righteousness, and it doesn't, it's not utopian. Um, because as we talked about earlier, all of us in life will make mistakes. Yeah, you know, I'm thankful that I was raised in an environment where my mother and father taught me to love myself. They taught me to love my family. They taught me to love my community. Mm. And they taught me to love God. And I'm not suggesting that all of us, you know, have to be religious. I'm I don't I'm spiritual. I don't consider myself religious. My father was a Christian minister, but he also understood that there are other faiths and there are good people who may be agnostic or or even atheists. Mm-hmm. So we have to find a way to coexist with each other in this very small planet. And it only takes a few good women and men to bring about something good. Dad showed us that. Mom showed us that. And so I would challenge us. I would challenge us to work to become our best selves. And we have to keep working to make this experiment of America become a more perfect union because mm. it, it, is, it is a nation that has so much promise and yet has so much to give to the world. Always, already has given to the world, but yet we can continue to give more. Uh, Dad used to say we have to think about other preservation, not self-preservation. Self-preservation, he said, um, is okay. But other preservation is better because in thinking about others, you ultimately address yourself because you really are talking about lifting, lifting up all boats. That is something that can happen. Uh, people may not believe it, but I am one who is convinced that we can create the climate. Uh, and we, meaning all of us together, working together, we can create the climate where all boats can be lifted and we can live in a society of freedom and justice and equality for all humankind. Martin, that's a beautiful way to end this program. Thanks for coming on the show today. And for everyone listening out there, thanks for being here. And always, keep it real. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Martin.
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real